High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for some science, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. What is the world's most renowned organization for science, research, and innovations? The National Institute of Health, the NIH. The NIH is the United States Medical Research Agency. NIH is made out of 27 different institutions and centers, each with its own research agenda. A center for cancer, for heart, lung, and blood, a center for allergies and infectious diseases, Anthony Fauci's place, and there's a center for addiction the National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIDA. NIDA can trace its history to 1935 with a small addiction research center in Kentucky to now a $1.8 billion agency with 389 full-time employees and over 2,000 research investigators. They invest in research for basic neuroscience, epidemiology, risk and preventive factors, prevention, treatment, and implementation. NIDA provides a gold standard to the world on issues of substance use disorder. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hey, we don't have a question of the day. That's because we are welcoming in 2023 and have multiple questions of the day from a few people to an international medical rock star. Dr. Nora Wolkoff is the longest residing director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. NIDA and has been there since 2003. She is the world's go-to person when it comes to the issue of drugs. She was named top 100 people who shape our world and has been instrumental in demonstrating that drug addiction is a brain disorder. To learn more about Dr. Nora Wolkoff and NIDA, please visit the High Truth show notes. Dr. Nora Wolkoff, welcome to High Truths. Hello, how are you? Thanks for having me. It's great. It's always an honor inspiring to get to talk to you. So I'm excited. You know, I thought we'd do something different. People have so many questions to you about drugs and addiction. My first question to you is, I want to get, I've known you now for several years, but can you share with us a little bit about you, the woman behind NIDA for almost 20 years? Yes, I, um, I was born in Mexico. I went to medical school there, and uh, I've always wanted to understand how the human brain works. And I was particularly intrigued about how drugs can so profoundly change behavior of people. And 
and drive their motivation in ways that make no sense to people that are not taking them and become addicted to them. But I was also very frustrated as, as a physician in training that, uh, that we weren't taking attention of these uh, people that we neglected, that we stigmatized them. And so if you put these two things together, my interest of understanding how the human brain works and, and my frustration as a physician on how we were treating people with substance use disorders, then you can understand why I chose psychiatry as my specialty. And uh, so I left Mexico when I finished medical school and then I went to New York University to start my training in psychiatry. But what led me to New York University was the fact that it was the first academic center involved with the use of um, a, a new newly developed brain imaging technology, positron emission tomography, the first, um, the first technology that allows us to look inside the human brain in a three-dimensional way and at a higher spatial resolution than what we had observed in the past with, for example, electrophysiology, which only records in the, in the surface area. So that's why I ended up in New York University because they were doing studies with positron emission tomography to investigate uh, what was wrong in the brain of people suffering from schizophrenia. So, so I ended up in NYU for that. And, and, and of course, immediately as I started my residence in psychiatry and concomitant with that, I started to work on research projects to investigate uh, whether there were changes in the brain, metabolic, uh, metabolism, which is a good marker of brain activity in people suffering from schizophrenia. And that's how my whole career uh, on brain imaging started. And uh, but, uh, so I went from studying uh, brain changes in schizophrenia, schizophrenia to focusing the use of this technology for understanding how drugs affect the human brain in, in people that are not addicted, but also obviously then jumping into how drugs affect the brain in people that are addicted and, and trying to understand how those changes actually account how do they help us explain the, the behavioral modifications on people struggling with addiction? And then that's someone offered me the position of NIDA director, and I didn't want to do it because I love science. But they convinced me and they said, Nora, what you can do as director of NIDA um, can be so much broad reaching that what you can do as a scientist. And so I agreed to do it under that condition that I could keep on doing research. And that was 19 years ago. And um, I basically never regretted the choice. It's been um, a, re a really incredible opportunity to be able to work alongside a, a really extraordinary group of people at NIDA. Um, but where our mission is to provide resources to these incredibly bright and creative people in order to help us advance uh, the knowledge of, uh, of substance use disorders and, in, in, and also to help us advance that knowledge into translational products so that it's not just knowledge that stays in, an, in a journal, but it's actually knowledge that is directly applied for prevention or treatment, or importantly, hopefully to guide policies. So that's a very short description of my whole life. <laughs> And you've made such an impact and you continue to do so. And what's remarkable is that you've survived 
you know, this charged political position through many different government administrations, which is, I think, a testament to your wisdom and the trust that you have with the American people. Yeah, no, and, uh, but, but one of the aspects that has helped me enormously is that the position of director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse is not a political position, which is not the case, for example, for the person that directs the NIH, or actually there is a director position at the NIH, that of the Cancer Institute, which is also political. But when you are not a political appointee, you have much more flexibility and freedom. And the other, the other philosophy that I have taken from day one has always been, look, I mean, we are a science organization. We are based our value in terms of obtaining evidence and data. And the moment that you ask me to shape that data, to change the coloring of that data on the basis of political pressure, you lose any value that I can give you as a, as a scientific agency. So my, my argument has always been and my strategy is here is the data. You can ignore it or you can use it to actually do better choices. But I, I, don't, uh, I don't ever give opinions of me, Nora. I basically present the data and let the data do the opinioning. It's not, it's not me. So I, I remove that personalized component. And I think it's a strategy that we should all use in general in science, right? Because if we are, I mean, the science speaks for itself. I don't need to say anything, right? And it's like when people ask me, well, you know, um, should we legalize more drugs? And I said, well, just look at the cost to lives and 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 morbidity of that we have from from legal drugs. And you make the math and you decide. Right, but I like taking your science and your data. And for me, as a, somebody who lives in a community, want to make that into action, but but based on on your science. But really, I really attribute to you. I, wherever I go, people who have met you or dealt with NIDA always say the same thing, that all the staff is very caring, passionate, and very pleasant to deal with. So really, a testament to you, because you said that you mentioned your history, but what you didn't you maybe even know about yourself is that you're a, a great um, organizer of, of, of people to run such an agency um, that has such respect. And I want to say it, I mean, it's absolutely, uh, uh, completely true. I'm not saying it for any diplomatic reasons or not. One of the most reinforcing components of my of my job is to work with my staff at NIDA. They are pretty extraordinary. And, and again, I, I do not give them for granted at all. They, they are just fantastic. And I love their mission, their passion, their creativity. So I'm not surprised other people also see it in them. I'm very lucky to have such a fantastic group. Yes, it shows. So a question about the name, NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, there's controversy now with the word abuse and the stigma of it. And so is there a movement now to, to change the, the, word, the name of NIDA? Yes, indeed. And it's not the, la the first one I've done. I mean, actually, when I became director very early on uh, into my tenure, I tried to change the name because I hate abuse. It's physical, sexual abuse. I mean, we have these associations we condition. And after um, something like 10 months of intense working, they decided, no, we're not going to do it. But now it looks like it will, it will happen. And I mean, 
expecting it will happen at the beginning of the next year, I hope so, the new name will be the National Institutes on Drugs and Addiction. So it will keep its NIDA, but we will get rid of the term abuse. So get rid of the term abuse. And I know there's a lot of work now about stigmatizing language. I've noticed people who are um, in treatment and people in harm reduction are very sensitive to, to, to the language. But people who are in recovery um, don't mind saying abuse and don't mind calling themselves addicts. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, and there is differences on the way that people look at language, and I think that we have to respect them, and which makes it also very difficult to come with an agreement about what are the uh, optimal terms. And, and researchers have been looking at that, and we've done a lot of surveys with uh, patient groups and their families, as well as um, uh, other social groups. With respect which terms are offensive and demeaning to, to people, and and clearly the one of uh, abuse is, is a term that is uh, very, has very negative connotations. And it's also, the, in, in terms of the term, for example, addiction, overall the sense, and, and this is consistently endorsed by a lot of people, is the term, you are an addict, is of course very demeaning. But stating a person suffering from addiction is not. So you are modifying the language uh, between transforming the identity of the person to the condition. You are an addict, as opposed to actually identifying some for someone that has a condition, just like it's a person suffering from cancer or a person suffering from mental illness. That is the proper way that people feel about. But within this dialogue, of course, the term addiction itself is not um, actually seen as pejorative. And on the other hand, it is um, more precise in certain instances and narratives than when we use the term that is now uh, the new diagnostic criteria of substance use disorders. Why? Because individuals, not all individuals with suffering from a substance use disorders have an addiction. I mean, if you, if you look at the descriptions, Someone with a mild substance use disorder really does not fit the category of suffering from an addiction. They are in the early stages, sort of like the term that we started to coin, which is the pre-addiction stage, a stage where you are at greater risk. And uh, it's important to identify it because it highlights the opportunity to do an intervention. And this term of pre-addiction was very much in, sort of inspired by the term of pre-diabetes that led then to um, the ability to identify people that are higher risk of diabetes and, uh, and, and concomitant with that, there are sort of uh, categories that allow for reimbursement of interventions for individuals suffering from pre-diabetes. And so, so we want to be able to create um, such a category that will then allow for clinicians and healthcare providers to be able to be reimbursed and therefore for them to be incentivized to screen and, and intervene with individuals that are suffering from pre-addiction. But so, so coming back to the, the, the whole issue of, of term, that's why we are just still using the term addiction and why actually the National 
institutes on drugs and addiction were collected. Interesting. So mild SUD equals pre-addiction. That's one of, we're proposing that, um, okay. that it is mild SUD. And this became important, for example, when you have, uh, we are living this overdose crisis where we're really unprecedented number of people are unfortunately dying from, from overdoses, um, predominantly um, driven by fentanyl, but but in many instances, um, the consumption of the fentanyl is hidden in the drug that the person thinks they are taking, cocaine and methamphetamine, which is laced with fentanyl and they die. And so, so and, and, and in the case of people with opioid use disorder, for example, they are at the highest risk, but the, the will give, and we have buprenorphine and methadone, which work very well for preventing overdoses and and uh, helping achieve recovery if that person takes them. But you are not going to give someone buprenorphine or methadone if they are basically in the early stages of a substance use disorder, in the mild cases, which can be suffering from basically tolerance and withdrawal. And that is going to happen to any one of us if they give us an opioid for therapeutic. It's going to happen, and it happens relatively fast. So does that mean I'm going to put you on methadone? No. But we haven't tackled that issue of what is actually the best strategy to do an interve intervention on this early stage. And that's where the whole concept of prediction also could be very valuable because it will incentivize not just to get reimbursement from healthcare, but hopefully researchers to try to identify, first of all, uh, the importance of screening, but importantly, what intervention should we be doing right now where the illicit drug market is so dangerous because it's frequently contaminated with fentanyl so we can protect those people and protect them and prevent them from overdosing. It was not like that in the past, but it is now. And so this is uh, another aspect about why we're so interested right now on pushing the concept of pre-addiction, which we basically have are equating as, as you asked the question, of um, just basically mild substance use disorder. That's great. That's important. I think I saw your article that you published about pre-addiction and went out and I will have a podcast just on talking about that because that's so important as you mentioned. I have different people um, who have questions for you, high truth fans and experts. And so if you don't mind, um, Julie Shamish, lost her son Tyler to fentanyl poisoning, just as you d describes. And since then, she established the Drug Awareness Foundation. She wants to know what your take is. And you kind of talked about that, about the, the terrible increased toll of mortality data. I remember one time when you spoke at the RX Summit years ago, before fentanyl was, you know, making its logarithmic uh, climb, it was just a blink, you said, we cannot afford to allow fentanyl to be a trend. You predicted the, the disaster, really, that we're living through now. But So now that you're looking at the current data, the latest data, what, what's your mind telling you, like you say? Well, I mean, my mind, uh, my brain is telling me. <laughs> my brain is telling me. I mean, I, I, I sort of, and the story that you're telling is, is just so very tragic, but what it is telling you, me, in my brain, is always sort of say, this is why this is so incredibly urgent. And uh, it's also telling me it's not a problem that's going to go out by itself, and which basically highlights the importance of coordinating our actions 
and using the evidence to guide them, coordinating an evidence base and to ensure that we have the resources to sustain those actions. And, and why do I say that this is not going to go out by itself? I say it because to start with the profits that the dealers are making with uh, fentanyl are enormous. And it's a very, very powerful reinforcer. And they also have the incentives on actually continue to work with chemistry and innovation to develop increasingly more powerful drugs so that they can make more and more money. And they are going to be very aggressive in the way that, it, uh, they, they, that these drugs are distributed as we're already seeing across all of the United States. In a period of few years, it went from isolated areas in the United States that, where you had fentanyl to now covering the whole United States in, in remote areas, in Alaska, in rural areas, uh, in, in multiple places, in, in areas where typically you have not seen fentanyl, for example, the whole West Coast was predominantly methamphetamine. And now you know that that's not, uh, we cannot basically say that West Coast is, is, uh, is safe from fentanyl. So this is the, the tremendous amount of profits that can be made and that the facility with which it's distributed and the ability to use technologies like the web in order to be able to adver advertise and sell these products um, are very, very powerful. And uh, unless we are asked, basically, as I say, proactive in integrating, providing the evidence-based um, treatments and prevention and providing the resources to deploy them. Um, they are going to continue to win the battle to a certain extent, as we're seeing very unfortunately by the tragic loss of so many lives. I, um, I You always look at things, I mean, this is a, a horrific tragedy, but when you look at the horrific tragedies, in, in a way, it also brings in us that urgency to actually on the one hand, work together, one would hope, I, I tend to be an optimist, but also um, in this case, the recognition that we need to pay attention to this issue. And, and as you know, in addiction, ultimately, it's a disease that is neglected and uh, is neglect, neglected and stigmatized. And so realizing that this attitude that we have had as a society is one of the reasons why we find ourselves here. And why do I say that? I say that because in the healthcare system, in medical school, nurses, dentists, many of the medical professions are not that trained on addressing substance use disorders. And until very recently, was there were no costs really to reimburse at the same level. Uh, substance use disorder, actually, we are still not reimbursing at the level that it uh, deserves as it compares to other medical conditions. So these discrimination against substance use disorders have weakened our system, our structural systems to provide the prevention and treatment that would have obviated very much, I think, the, the current overdose crisis. It would have made us alert too about uh, much earlier than when it happened that overdose deaths were happening, that people suffering from pain that were given uh, opioids were becoming addicted to them. Clinicians not having been trained were not able to recognize it. And if they recognized it, did not know what to do. So this is where I see that ultimately this is the things that they, this, the, the, the story you are telling of a mother who loses a child uh, and loses a child 
out of, um, I, I mean, an occasional drug use, or even if it was a frequent drug use, um, without because that that drug was contaminated with fentanyl is going to continue to happen unless we become very very um, strategic and committed all of us together to stop it. But I do believe it can be stopped very much. We don't have enough. Like if I admit a patient to the hospital with an infection. Um, because of their substance use disorder. They'll get an infectious disease consult, a hospitals consult, a, you know, ICU consult, um, a, a, you know, cardiology if it's their heart, but they won't have someone to treat the underlying cause of all that. Um, we have, I, I'm jealous of the palliative care services that available throughout the United States for a small population. And we, you know, we really need an addiction service uh, at hospitals throughout America that would fill up very quickly. But uh, you mentioned Julie. Julie became my partner in um, passing a, a law in California that will require fentanyl to be included in all drug screens whenever it's ordered in the hospital. I think I talked to you about that um, yeah, years ago. You know, we wanted to um, uh, bring that awareness. So we we now in California, thanks to, to Julie, will have uh, the first law in the United States that whenever a drug screen is ordered, it will include fentanyl. Congratulations, and I'm very glad you passed that law, and I think it will serve as an example to other states. Yeah, and if you talk to anybody who says, oh, I'm a rural hospital, I can't do it, send them to me, I'll teach them how. <laughs> yeah, no, and bravo, I think, uh, bravo to you and Julie, this is quite an accomplishment, because one of the, the problems that we're facing is because we don't have data, and ultimately what is driving the overdoses we basically are operating many times in the dark as it relates to how to properly treat that person on the one hand, but we're also operating in the dark as it relates of what is the magnitude of the problem of fentanyl. And, and without that information, that there's no reason why we should not be getting that information. And, and so I heard it from many emergency um, um, department physicians who says, you know, it's we cannot, we just basically give naloxone, but we really do not have the structure to be able to test whether it was from fentanyl or not. Yeah. So I would tell all of them that, yes, you have the structure, you just need to implement it. It's there. You just haven't talked to your lab and made those connections. Um, and... Um, but that, and again, I'm happy to help. I have a toolkit available to teach any hospital in America how to how to get that done. Um, when next, I ask a question, though, they yeah. say to me uh, it's very expensive. So how seventy five cents? Seventy five cents. Our reagent costs seventy five cents. Not expensive. No, I agree. Seventy five cents. That's sort of actually I'm glad to hear because that's when I that was one of the answers that I got consistently oh, it's very um, expensive to get it done and we don't have the capabilities. Now, a clinic, it is expensive. They, there is no FDA approved, and I've talked to the FDA, there's no uh, FDA approved um, multi-drug fentanyl testing if you're in a clinic setting. But every hospital in America, big or small, rural, um, has a chemical analyzer that tests for CBC and chemistry panels. You add that 75 cent reagent of fentanyl and you, Every hospital in America, there's no excuse that, that we're not all doing it. 
Okay, I'm going to send them to you unless you want to give me the link of the information and then I'm not. Yeah, I'll, after this call, I will send you the link to the, our toolkit because it is, it's available um, nationwide anywhere. Um, so happy Terrific. to dispel no, that. I great. And then you told me about it. And I think it was like a, one year ago. Or yeah. More than so this, this sounds uh, wonderful. So I'm glad that you did. Yeah. And it passed, it was a, a Republican senator who, who carried it through a California Congress and it had really no opposition, very little. So that was good. Um, Dr. Nathan Painter is a professor of pharmacy at UCSD, co-chair of the Healthcare Task Force. And his question to you is, what's the one thing that we can spread in our communities to prevent SUDs? Well, I think that, uh, the, I mean, it is not um, per se uh, one of the, the, the areas of research that we have worked on, but I think that the data out there, the evidence is very, very strong that the use of condoms is probably one of the most effective interventions in order to prevent sexually transmitted diseases. And so, um, and, and one of the issues that, that we have seen, for example, is as the antiretroviral therapies became, it became clear that if you treat someone with antiretroviral therapy for HIV, they are not going to be infected. Their likelihood of infecting someone else is very, very minimal. And so that led, of course, to a much greater freedom on sexual practices and, and the lack of reliance, among other things, on condom. And that in parallel, I mean, that, that change in behaviors was associated in a rise in other sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis. But, you know, I had a conversation with Bob DuPont, uh, drugs uh, NIDA director, right before you. And he said that you know, the analogy of sex and drugs is not the same because there's a biological drive to have sex. There's not a biological drive to use drugs. So if we prevent youth from starting in the first place, you know, we won't get to zero, but but that would be the most upstream approach. But um, sexually transmitted diseases are actually occurring whether in people that use drugs or not. Uh, when, uh, when under the effects of a drug intoxication, then people tend to engage in riskier behavioral practices. And we know, for example, that is the case with methamphetamine. And in fact, among men that have sex with men, uh, we've always recognized that because of, of studies that have evaluated and, and gone into, into the field to get information that many individuals, when they want to engage in, in sexual practices, they do consume methamphetamine in, in that context and they feel freer and more daring. But that comes at a price because they are going to be doing behaviors that are much riskier. So in that context of drug taking, drug taking increases risk but irrespective of whether the person is taking drugs or not, one intervention that actually um, could prevent sexually transmitted diseases is the use of condoms. So independent of anything else, I'm just sort of bringing it up. Apart from the fact that this is not, this is not research that also an institute has worked on and is more on areas of um, infectious disease prevention in general. So what is the condom for drugs? Is that the Narcan, naloxone? Well, no, no, no. The condom uh, use um, basically is something that 
prevents an over the, uh, prevents an infection, right? So, okay. so a condom will protect a person from getting HIV or syphilis. But a naloxone, if I take naloxone and then I take a drug, um, first of all, if a person is a drug user and they take naloxone, it will trigger a withdrawal. And so naloxone is a medication that is very useful to reverting an overdose, but not to take it before you take a drug, because then you're going to generate a very aversive physiological and and mental state of the individual that, if anything, is going to lead them to want to take more and more drugs. So that's why the metaphor does not work. Okay. <laughs> so I think he's mentioned, uh, and maybe this is just not an area that, that NIDA is doing with this, is, you know, primary prevention, preventing very up, very upstream approach. Um, I think I've heard you talk about it when you talk about ACE and 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 trauma and 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 family and things that we can control, some things we can control, some things we can't control, like your genetics and some things we can't control, kind of like the risk factors for cardiac disease. Um, but if we did that upstream approach, um, and again, I don't know if that's an area that uh, as much that, that NIDA is looking into. No, no. And thanks for asking that question. In fact, it's one of our top in, uh, initiatives and, and, and areas of interest. I mean, all along, we've basically been speaking, I mean, and characterizing addiction as a disease of the brain. And now our dialogue is basically saying, yes, it's a chronic disease of the brain, but with very strong social uh, components to it. And, and so we emphasize how crucial those socially adverse experiences have in the basically putting, increasing the risk of people taking drugs, but also increasing the risk that if they uh, take the drugs, they become addicted, and also increasing the risk that if they are already addicted, um, they're much less likely to respond properly to treatment or to achieve recovery. So throughout the whole the cascade of from early initiation to later, the social determinants of health play extremely important roles. And as you mentioned before, because it's to me also the way that I, I, I view it, yes, our genetics are important. Some of us have higher risk for um, vulnerability for, for addiction, but those, how do you change them? On the other hand, you can modify or buffer environmentally adverse exposures by doing prevention interventions. And so within this whole concept, um, we've been funding for many, many years prevention research, and we what we're right now doing it is to try to understand at the neurobiological level, how do those socially adverse experiences or environments that researchers have recognized increase your risk? Why is it that they do that? What do they do to our brain? And, and this is important because if you can identify the consequences that these adverse uh, childhood experiences have in the development of your brain, then you can have a biomarker that you can use to see and evaluate someone and then apply an intervention and monitor whether you can revert those changes. And, and, and this is in, indeed one of the reasons why we launched the, the very large study of the ABCD, Adolescent Brain Development of yes. Cognition, which is a prospective study that, that investigates exactly that. Um, how the brain changes from age nine, 10, and 11 into young adulthood, and how those, those changes in brain development, how are they affected by your genes, 
by your environmental exposures, uh, such as family income, adverse neighborhoods, exposure to, to stressors, and uh, so, so, so to build up the knowledge base and, and it's paying off. I mean, we're starting to identify uh, now with much greater detail uh, the adverse effects that these stressful social conditions have in the development of the brain. I mean, it seems to shorten the developmental period, um, which of course puts these, these uh, children at a disadvantage because the, the, the brain has on purpose physiologically a long developmental period in order to maximize the, its complex interactions and um, be optimal for responding to a very complex environment. So if you shorten that period, you are uh, limiting, constraining that ability of the brain to maximize uh, the environment in which it finds itself. So um, this is, um, again, why we are very much, so when you're asking me, are we interested? I said, absolutely. And, and two, last year we launched an equivalent to the ABCD study, but that instead of starting at age nine, 10, start, starts in infancy. Because obviously that period is also very important. Right. So actually in, in, in San Diego, fentanyl was declared, uh, you know, a, a state of emergency and our local leaders are now going to um, look into science, evidence-based uh, education in schools, which we haven't had for many years to start working on things at that level. Um, so hopefully bring, bring evidence-based and, and science into that methodology as well. So Marla Kincaid works for the Center of Community Research and, facili and facilitates the merged uh, San Diego Meth Strike Force and our Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. So she's asking, what are the innovations for addiction treatment? And I know that you probably have many things that are e exciting to you uh, that are on the horizon. Oh, yeah, they are. And I just was making you smile because it's sort of, that's when I was saying before that, uh, I am optimistic that we can absolutely control it because the science where the science takes us has advanced enormously. And one of the areas where it has advanced enormously is identifying uh, uh, targets that we can modify in order to be able, and I'm, when I speak about targets in this context, I'm basically thinking of molecular targets that then medications can go after. So say, for example, the, the treatments that we currently have for opioid use disorder, methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone, they're quite, quite effective, but there's only three different classes. So, and they all target the same receptor, the new opioid receptor. So now, for example, investigators are looking at other receptor systems, for example, the kappa opioid receptor system, which could also be beneficial, not just for opioid use disorder, by a variety of other types of addiction. Similarly, the dopamine D3 receptor, if you can antagonize it in animal models, we know that you prevent relapse also from a wide variety of drug addictions. I just came from the meeting on uh, the ACNP, which is one of the main pharmacological meetings um, where the science of addiction is presented, as well as mental illness. And there were some really interesting data, for example, the, the, there's presentation of, of um, hormone-like molecules that act like hormone-like 
um, that uh, are synthesized, uh, obviously in a chemistry lab that can actually prevent cannabis use disorders that can help cannabis use disorder. And it's very exciting because as of now, we have nothing, nothing pharmacologically to be able to help people suffering from cannabis use disorder, other than perhaps some of the um, synthetic cannabinoids that can be used for withdrawal, but not for addressing craving or that, that compulsion to take more. There was also um, some very, very interesting data that showed um, now molecular targets that can go, for example, to improve social behaviors. And, and this is, is extraordinary because one of the, the aspects that we've known on along in the neuroscience of addiction is that uh, social isolation um, actually exacerbates the severity of the, 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 the drive to take drugs and interferes with the ability to regain recovery. But some of the drug effects actually directly interfere with those social networks in our brain. There are sort of big areas in our brain that are devoted to social behaviors, the motivation to want to be with people, that gets degraded in addiction. So the ability um, to create actually completely new targets is, that's why I say it's fascinating. Another area that I'm very, very excited about is the issue of neuromodulation. And uh, again, there were several presentations on this, but it uh, actually has advanced in such a way that sort of, and these, there are multiple technologies that you can use. Uh, some of them are not, most of them are non-invasive. You can use transcranial magnetic stimulation or direct electrical current stimulation or ultrasound on top of your head. And um, by understanding how the different areas of the brain connect with one another, you can target one region to affect the whole network. And that is being used for multiple substance use disorders. A similarly peripheral nerve stimulation, like for example, you have in your ear, you have a peripheral branch of the vagus nerve. And if you can actually stimulate it, you can improve withdrawal symptoms. Other researchers are actually for very severe cases with where other treatments have not worked, are actually currently doing research for deep brain stimulation where you place electrodes into the nucleus accumbens. And this is akin to what uh, one of the treatments for Parkinson's disease is, which uses electrodes through the subthalamic nuclei and helps patients actually uh, that are not, uh, that actually have stronger responses than that they, they see with uh, typical medications. So this is a, just an absolutely fascinating area of research. There's also a lot on, of interest. It is I'm actually um, optimistic on the basis of how we're advancing the whole methodology for development of immunotherapies. And immunotherapies uh, involves both vaccines as well as monoclonal antibodies that are, target, are targeting the drug itself. And the idea is that the monoclonal antibodies, whether it is because you got a vaccine and you produce them or you get them passively administered, that monoclonal antibody binds to the drug and interferes with it crossing the blood-brain barrier. So it just traps it in the bloodstream. And as a result of that, the person will not get high and the person will not overdose. So, so the challenges, and that's again where 
where I say I am optimistic in as much as, the, as sort of the whole methodology is advancing with uh, COVID has helped advance it enormously. So that now, uh, for example, monoclonal antibodies can be delivered that have a longer lasting half-life than they used to have in the past. And that provides the possibility of getting a treatment. Vaccines are harder because you need to produce a lot of monoclonal antibodies to stop that drug from getting into the brain. And uh, the vaccines as of now that we have are not sufficient, are not producing sufficient titers of antibodies, but, but researchers are working on it. But on the other hand, we already know with the monoclonal antibodies, you can just load a very large amount. So that's very, very exciting. Another area, as you know, that has captured enormous amount of interest is the potential of the use of psychedelic drugs for the treatment of substance use disorders. This is a very incipient area, for, for, and therefore we, we have to be cautious, and we have to be cautious in as much as it, it attracts a lot of attention, so it becomes sort of like, in a way, like a fairy tale, okay? We have a, a magical drug that is going to cure um, substance use disorders. Um, so whereas the data right now in, is, is still limited, but it does look extremely interesting, and it's opening up uh, a completely new way of looking at medication. So normally you give medications and while you're taking them, while you're taking methadone or buprenorphine, it basically prevents you from overdosing and it controls the withdrawal and the craving. But, and, and that allows you to rebuild your life. And with time, as you rebuild your life, you can basically achieve recovery. But this type of medication is different because you take, say, for example, psilocybin, and it's you take the drug, and it binds to its receptor, which is the 5-HT2A. It's an agonist. It activates it. And as it binds to it, which can last two, three, four hours, you actually some sort of have this dissociative experience of meaning and, 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 and senses that you don't normally experience. And then the drug leaves your brain. But if you follow these people, the effects are long lasting. So there was this acute effect of dissociation that it that lasts as long as the drug is binding to the receptor. And then there are long lasting effects on decreases in anxiety and on depression. And for um, in the studies that have been done with alcohol or with smoking, reduction in the desire to take these drugs. So there is a lot of interest uh, right now on the potential of psychedelics, but I do, and I think it is um, where basically need more research in order to understand how to use it properly and, and who will respond and to minimize potential side effects. Because in some people, psychedelic, the use of psychedelic therapeutics has resulted in increases in suicidal ideation. So we need to understand that um, in, to basically maximize any potential benefit that it may have and do such in, so in a responsible way. But th the problem I see is that NIDA says psychedelics may be you know, helpful in substance use disorder. And I understand what you're saying that this is research, we need to do it, we still have to go through the regular process, FDA approval and everything. But what society hears is psychedelics are helpful for substance use disorder. So let's legalize them in California and Oregon and creating more harm than good. Um, so 
I'm wondering if you can, like, each time you say that, put the caveat. That I always do. I always do. It, because, because what's happening is now you just go to Amazon and you just buy the psychedelics and, and, and all sorts of things and um, increasing uh, my business in the emergency department um, because they take a little bit of truth um, and expand that, okay, now all these psychedelics are good for, for, for everything and, and they're being sold with this, you know, that it's good for all these disease process without the science. They take the one statement that, you know, there's hope in research and they're not going to wait for that. They're already marketing it and commercializing it. Absolutely. No, I know that. And it's very frustrating. And the same, just is the same story as we have heard from cannabis, medical cannabis. Yeah. But it's the issue when you have this invested interest of actually creating a profit from these products that you start to get these uh, non, non-evidence-based practices. And it's, it's very, very harming. It's very harming both at the level of the individual that can actually have very negative consequences. Again, and I sort of, when I do this presentation, I, I try to pick up the latest paper that gets with respect to show that increase in suicidal behaviors. I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, it's suicide. To just sort of highlight why this, this whole area of research, we is absolutely not ready for clinical practice. It's not ready for clinical practice. Thank you for saying that. Because we say <laughs> this, and, but as yeah. much as we say that, and I will repeat it, the people that are interested on basically making a profit uh, we'll basically just ignore it. And people that are very desperate, like with fairy tales, there, there is something in our brain that we want to believe of these magical, miraculous cures, and we become much more vulnerable if, if we are suffering from a condition. And, and I understand that because you want so much to have something and that whole notion of hope, how important it is. But the, the problem here is, is not... The notion of the hope, I mean, the data is, is really not solid to actually be justified to generating the hope right now. The hope may come into the future. And, I, and again, as I say, but it does require that we understand it much, much better. I mean, the evidence is extremely preliminary with respect to substance use disorders. Is stronger for the treatment of um, uh, depression still. It's, 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 uh, early on, but that is the area that's most advanced and to a certain extent, post-traumatic stress disorder with MDMA, um, but research. I mean, this is why we do research. Right. It reminds me of like the total public health picture. Um, the, the vaping products are a good example of that. They, they say, oh, it helps people stop smoking. And I, and I saw one of the studies that, that uh, was shared me with me from the CDC tobacco office that for every one person who maybe stops smoking using vape, we've created 80 adolescent new users who never would have in the first place. And and they had um, calculations that for every, you know, 100 years saved by vaping, we've cost 100 million years of lives by people starting vaping in the first place. So yeah, maybe it helps a few people, but the greater societal harm I think was not worth it. But my perspective on this is actually um, is, is somewhat different. I think my perspective on this, we are always going to be finding uh, interventions, therapeutic interventions that will have a benefit for a group of people. But 
if they are not properly uh, regulated, can produce enormous amounts of harm. And I don't see, I see electronic nicotine cigarettes the same way. Uh, the, the basically, on the one hand, the recognition that we need to regulate them so that they do not become available and accessible to people that are not having, are not finding or fighting already with a nicotine addiction, while also recognizing that in people with um, severe tobacco use disorder, these products can provide some benefits. So they are not antithetical. And, and we have, I mean, our brains are extraordinarily complex that we have this social system. There's no reason why we cannot generate a system that allows us to use it. It's the same argument in terms of, for example, fentanyl. Yes, fentanyl is incredibly valuable in, uh, for anesthesia. It allows you to bring down the utilization of anesthetic agents and with basically minimal or no risks. You are in a sort of surgical suite. You have patients intubated or with an anesthesiologist monitoring their oxygenation. I, I give fentanyl all the time in the emergency department. Yeah. So there you see, but fentanyl on the other hand, outside that world produces a horrific overdose crisis. So I view it the same thing with respect to the uh, nicotine um, electronic cigarettes. And one of the, the issues that we have been trying to work on is to develop, if you could get the, for example, let me give you an example about these issues, some of the low hanging fruit. Why can we not just determine that electronic nicotine cigarettes have been to actually um, available only through a prescription? I Yeah, I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that if it, following your theory, then it should be available through prescriptions for people who have a severe nicotine use order instead of letting having all these teenagers um, be vaping. But that's exactly a policy that one could conceive. I mean, I just sort of throw it in my brain. I mean, there are, yeah. there are nuances into some of these issues because you also want it to be available uh, to people that um, may not have insurance. Or So how do you create a systems that allow you to, to make it accessible and equitable to everybody that could benefit from it and at the same time protect everyone? We've done it in the past and it's it's going to continue happening because they, it is not uncommon to have therapeutics that are useful for some people, but they also have very negative effects when they are used outside that clinical context. That's great. Uh, James Rao is founder of Families Against Fentanyl. His son died of fentanyl, illicit fentanyl, directly traced to China trafficking and he's advocating for illicit fentanyl to be declared a weapon of mass destruction. Um, what is your opinion of this drastic measure to reduce supply? And I know you say you follow the science, not the politics, but maybe mention about the science of the supply side and, and, and having you know ways of preventing um, these drugs coming and preying on our population. Yeah, no, and it's a very, very tragic story. And I and I understand, I mean, it's just devastating. Um, you lose your son for, for a drug, for the profit of someone that's profiteering. I mean, it just is just very enraging and, and angering. And so the, there is no waste around it. I mean, because the, obviously the data shows that, that one of the components that determines uh, which drugs people take has to do in part to the access to those drugs. And, uh, and in the case of fentanyl, the access to those drugs is just so very easy. The low, low hanging uh, 
bar of getting uh, fentanyl, well, even when you don't want it, just because it's so easy to manufacture. So I do, and then basically the data supports very strong interventions to minimize the availability of, of fentanyl as one of the strategies that is necessary. So apart from the whole notion, of course, we need to do prevention and treatment for substance use disorders. It is also important that we do everything we can to minimize access of these extraordinary dangerous drugs for people that, that do not know. I mean, they, they don't know that the risk they are taking. And, and this is, uh, again, affecting all segments of the populations from teenagers where we didn't see overdoses from fentanyl in the past to older people that may be purchasing these uh, or prescription pills through the web uh, and end up with an illicitly manufactured pill that contains fentanyl and then they overdose and die. So it can just diversify the demographics. So controlling that is one of the components that is necessary to basically right, just stop this overdose crisis. So you support working on the supply part. Absolutely. Um, and another question comes from Cindy Cipriano. She's a senior management counsel of the Office of U.S. Attorney. She's co-chair of our Drug Abuse Task Force, and she noticed that there's something, there's a division. We know that we have a division in America, but there's also a division between people who are working on the issue of drugs, from people working on primary prevention in, in schools and youth, and those people who are promoting harm reduction and law enforcement and reducing the supply side. And sometimes it's, you know, a competitive environment instead of together. So what can you say to unite the different work groups who are working with different really cohorts of addiction, but we all have the same goal of saving lives? What can you say and, and I'm sure you do all the time, you, you bring your message, um, but how do we unite these com communities who are working with different cohorts rather than have them feel like it's competitive? I guess that the, the main message is how important it is for all of us to integrate our efforts. And I wouldn't say that there is one specific recipe in that will work in order to bring people together uh, from that very diverse uh, perspectives or, or issues that they are addressing, because that will depend very much in the community. What we are doing as a research agency is to actually helping fund um, sort, sort of examples of interventions um, that then can be developed and translated into other communities that show success exactly on that on bringing the people that are uh, involved with primary prevention, on bringing the, the healthcare system that is involved with the treatment and follow-up, in bringing the community that provides the support to achieve recovery. And that community also is the one that can solidify and strengthen uh, opportunities for doing primary prevention. So, so we are generated sort of demonstration projects that can then lead other communities to see uh, how did they do it? What were the active ingredients that are crucial to make it successful, but at the same time, tailor it to the situation, to the local situation. Uh, that, that is, uh, um, I think, uh, a strategy that as we advance and others see, and again, that takes roots in the community itself, itself 
hopefully um, will start to take a, a stronger movement in, in our country. And I also hope that just like we've uh, one of the priorities that the sort of from the perspective of NIDA has been to show that through the healthcare system, we have a very powerful um, first line in defense for therapeutics. I mean, a system that can be used and should be used to deploying for screening and therapeutics of substance use disorders and building the models that allow us to do that. And or justifying also through the findings the importance of reimbursement to sustain these, these capabilities. And so we would hope that a similar process can be created so that we can build a system, just like the healthcare system, to provide the prevention, which currently we don't have. Prevention, as you say, is done isolated by healthcare systems, by communities, but, but we don't have a, a, a process by which this is reimbursed and uh, systematically in any way. So as a result of that, it's, it's weakened and, um, and, and, and very dispersed and, in, and basically with very few connections. Trying to build models that connect and also trying to build the evidence that hopefully will provide the resources to sustain that structure that is necessary for prevention. What I do is I explain to people is I have all all these groups. I have them sit at one table, one Zoom conference, and we meet every month. And even though people have different perspectives, I explain that you're working with different population cohorts. So there's a population of cohort of, of people who've never used drugs. And the the prevention message to them is good job. This is a social norm and continue to protect your brain. We want you to protect your brain at least to age 25. So that's one message. The second cohort is people who are experimenting with drugs, like you say, maybe pre-addiction or just even experimenting. And the message there is the dangers of fentanyl and having naloxone and, and the contamination of the drug supply with fentanyl. And then there's a different cohort of people who have a substance use disorder and they deserve treatment with compassion and if they can't do treatment then at least harm reduction so i think by by separating because people mix up the prevention message you know when we see posters like you know use needles well that doesn't apply to the kid who doesn't use drugs and they don't listen there right just like somebody who's using uh, drugs and you say just okay just stop that's not going to make sense to them either. So, so I've tried to prevent separate to different cohorts, different prevention messages. Is that does that make sense? Absolutely, it makes a lot of sense. And I would just note a fourth group, which would be people that are taking drugs occasionally, not for experimenting with drugs, but because they actually are taking them for their psychotherapeutic beneficial effects, such as helping them sleep or helping them pay attention or uh, helping them deal with pain when they cannot get the medication from their provider. So that's the one that we were discussing before that they may end up by purchasing one of these illicitly manufactured prescription pills. Mm -hmm. So that message is also important that it is dangerous currently to purchase uh, prescription drugs from um, the illicit market because even though they may be much cheaper, they are advertised. Of course, they are much cheaper than one that is properly manufactured. The risks are very, very high. Thank you. Stage. Thank you for always teaching me. Um, my listeners know that I'm very jealous of infectious diseases. 
um, five cases of Shigella, and we open up hotel rooms for them, two cases of wound botulism, and the county sends a public health alert, and not to mention COVID, flu, RSV, always in the news. Um, can NIDA use the same type of infectious disease models? And I asked you before also if you're, you too are jealous, <laughs> like me, of an infectious disease. And I talked to um, Dr. Uh, Tom Frieden, who you know, previous CDC director, and he has this like healthcare pyramid of, you know, on the bottom, what society can do in preventing a, a problem, like removing trans fats from the food supply or mosquitoes for. Um, you know, for erat eradicate malaria. And then there would be, you know, different levels. At the top of the pyramid would be like the individual things that people could do to treat their high blood pressure or diabetes. Can we, do we have the same uh, model? I've tried to make a slide, like making similarities with that and for drugs. Maybe that's some, a paper I should work on, but what do you think? Well, you should absolutely. <laughs> I, and I think, and I was also saying yes, because I use, exactly how how effective we have been in, for example, addressing very, very rapidly the need for vaccines on the COVID pandemic and antivirals. We put enormous amounts of resources right. and basically the structure and the training. And I said, look, we are basically losing as many people or more from overdoses than we are from COVID. And yet there's there's nothing in terms of the willingness to put the resources that are necessary, a, a fragment of the resources that are necessary, which I think reflects two things. One of them, of course, the whole stigmatization that we have as substance use disorders, which is reflected by the very limited uh, attention that it, it gets with respect to the level of, of resources that, that are being a, that we are deploying to it. That that's one, but also. Obviously, with the COVID pandemic, it was something new. And the same thing happened when we had Zika, and the same thing happened with Ebola. There is this, something that is new. It generates a, a very intense reaction, as it should, as opposed to things that goes much slower. And so even with the overdose crisis, it was been much slower than with the COVID pandemic. And that determines to one of the, how, how much effort and attention it gets. But irrespective of that, I mean, whichever way that you look at it, the, the level of, of uh, focus that we've had in the healthcare system has nothing to do with infectious disease versus uh, addiction. And it does reflect um, the stigma. And I, so when you sort of say to me, do I get jealous? Well, I get inspired. I get inspired by how we as uh, using science and uh, we can also, through our healthcare system, provide an infrastructure to help people. And to me, it's, it's inspiring to do that. And I said, we can. Look at what we've done with COVID. We can come up with solutions to address the overdose crisis. Let's, let's learn from lessons learned and use that narrative to um, get, get more resources. And so, when you're telling me, maybe I should write that paper. I said, absolutely, because it does identify the similarities in the patterns, right? The, the emergence of new infectious disease agents, the emergence of increasingly more toxic and addictive drugs, and it's going to continue. And it's not going to stop by itself. We have to be proactive, so. Yeah.
Maybe you have a partner at NIDA who'd work with me on that. And I know where I want to be mindful of your your time. Um, just to 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 wrap things up, two 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 questions uh, quickly. But one is from Dr. Catherine Antley, who um, is from she's a dermatopathologist from Vermont and works on the uh, International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis. She wants to know if you would uh, support the the value of warning labels on cannabis products, like we have for tobacco or alcohol or flashing lights when we have. Um, uh, movies in, with you know warnings such as psychosis uh, and uh, mental health risks and, and the medical risks, and finally to close out, what are your hopes for 2023? Okay, so the answer is very simple. Yes, of course I would support them. Look at all of the data on nicotine; they, they actually shown that it has a significant impact in behavior of people to purchase them. So yes, the data is out there. We don't need to reinvent them and other countries are doing it, and it's actually basically reducing the amount of consumption of high doses of THC. What are my hopes? My, my hopes is that we do not forget the lessons learned from the COVID pandemic. And to me, one of the most powerful lessons, what were to me some of them? One of them was how damaging social isolation is and how much we need each other and how important it is for our well-being to have those social meaningful relationships and uh, in the case of substance use disorders that are actually extraordinarily important. And so to be able to provide that social support and advance the science in terms of that helps us consolidate the systems that provided to people so that we can prevent substance use disorders but help people achieve recovery, that's one. And the other thing that was made very clear to me from the COVID pandemic that again is something that I feel very strongly too crucial for, for substance use disorders is that horrific health disparities that we are observing. And in the case of COVID-19, it became evident because there were people from um, low income or, or socially deprived or stigmatized groups were at much higher risk of getting infected and much higher risk of dying. And in the case of of substance use disorders, we have seen how devastating the way that we as a society uh, have dealt with by criminalizing, by penalizing, and, and using this criminal uh, criminalization as a win to, again, more negatively affecting uh, vulnerable populations. And I hope that we don't forget those, those lessons from, from the COVID pandemic and that we take those lessons and bring them into um, action plans to get rid of stigma and to bring them into action plans to provide the support that is necessary for addressing prevention and treatment of substance use disorder. And we provide that resources and change it in attitudes that are necessary to get rid of um, structural racism. And thank you. Thank you to my guests and experts who asked great questions today that inspired our conversation. And thank you, Dr. Wolkoff, for your time today, your service to our country. You continue to innovate and lead with a fresh look every year. And you are my rock star. Thanks very much for having me. And keep on doing what you do. All right. We'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, 
the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Doctors Educating on the Harms of Marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.